This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Tuesday. We're doing infectious disease. This is all very fun. Yes, <laughs> How are you, Daphne? I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm excited. We're, we got some good questions lined up, I think, for today. Shall okay. we? Uh, yeah, let's go. Let's get, let's get us started. Okay, we're going to start with question nine um, today. Mm-hmm. A one-week-old full-term female infant presents to the emergency room with a fever, lethargy, and poor feeding. The infant was born by spontaneous vaginal delivery, had an unremarkable hospital course, and was discharged to home at 48 hours of age. The examination is notable for hepatosplenomegaly and jaundice, but no rash. While in the ER, the infant begins to have seizures. Um, A herpes polymerase chain reaction of her cerebral spinal fluid is positive. So when you thought you were going to (laughs) answer, you're going to have the answer to the question. (laughs) Your head is racing with like, what's the diagnosis? I figured it out. Oh, okay. So which of the following is the most accurate statement about herpes simplex virus infection in a neonate? Some other long answers here, but we'll get through them. A, Mm -hmm. approximately one third of infants who present with central nervous system manifestations of HSV will not exhibit any skin lesions. B, A reliable history from a mother denying any current or prior HSV infection will make neonatal HSV less likely. C, Mm -hmm. a cesarean delivery would not have prevented vertical transmission of neonatal HSV in this infant. D, neonatal HSV is only possible if the mother had active lesions at the time of delivery. E, Prompt initiation of intravenous acyclovir therapy will significantly reduce the neurological neurological sequelae of neonatal HSV disease. Ugh, that's a tough one. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm fortunate enough that choice A, which states that approximately one third of infants who present with central nervous system manifestation of HSV will not have any skin lesions. And I remember I, I had a patient with this and I've made the case, um, the baby that has seizures and my attending, um, I remember that vividly, my attending, uh, said we should, we should work this baby up for, for herpes and start treatment. And I said, but there's no rash. Mm-hmm. And my attending made that point saying, well, he's having neurological symptoms and that's, that's all you need. You may not have, uh, skin lesions. And to me, um, that was always the, the thing, right? I was always looking for that herpes rash. Um, so I remember that from, from fellowship. So that helps me a lot. I know that, that this is correct. But for the sake of argument, let's try to go through the other choices. A reliable history from a mother denying any current or prior HSV infection will make the neonatal HSV less likely. If you've taken care of any babies, we know the history is useless. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you have overt uh, herpes infection that could help you um, manage this more aggressively, the maternal history doesn't change the possibility of a baby acquiring HSV. Uh, cesarean delivery would not have prevented vertical tr- transmission of neonatal HSV in this patient. Um, considering that... Um, 
considering that most babies do acquire it around the time of delivery, I mean, that, that doesn't, that's not necessarily true mm -hmm. either. Um, neonatal HSV is only possible if the mother has active lesion. That goes back to the same thing with the history. That's not really reliable. Uh, they may not have any lesions and they, they may still uh, uh, pass the, the virus to, to the baby. And then that was the tricky one. E is really a tough one. Prompt initiation of IV acyclovir therapy will significantly reduce the neurological sequelae of neonatal HSV disease. And this like sounds so good. It just sounds so true. You're like, yes, definitely. Like the sooner we start, the better it will be. But again, if you've ever taken care of, um, of these babies, the treatment you want to be able to catch them before they have mm -hmm. symptoms because once it starts, it's not good. And that's the reason why we treat them for six freaking months is because treatment is not great. <laughs> we need to uh, really extend that course to get at least some significant uh, improvement in outcomes. So if you remember that we treat babies with neurological symptoms of HSV for six long months, then you remember that the outcomes are, are not super, super improved. I think there's like mild improvement in IQ, if I remember correctly, from that uh, New England paper. But anyway, A is my answer. Yeah, that's right. It's A. So uh, it is correct that approximately one-third of infants who present with central nervous system manifest manifestations of HSV will not exhibit any skin lesions. And that's because we know that HSV has three common presentations. Um, the SEM or the skin, eyes, and mouth, which present with our kind of prototypical vesicular rash. And that's the most common presentation, but it's only 40% of babies. Then you have the central nervous system disease, which presents in 30 to 35% of cases, um, which we can see irritability, um, poor abnormal thermoregulation, um, and we can have um, CNS or central nervous system uh, disease in about 30 to 35% of cases. Um, this these infants can present with irritability, they can have um, abnormal thermo thermoregulation, um, and then they can present like seizures, um, such as the baby in this case. And um, they may not have any skin findings. In fact, most of them don't have any skin findings. And then three, uh, the third um, subtype is disseminated disease, um, where you can see lots of symptoms. This happens in about a quarter of cases. They can have pneumonitis, they can have hepatitis, they can have DIC, encephalitis, still with the rash, but the rash may not even look vesicular. Um, so again, mm -hmm. have to have a really high index of suspicion for HSV. Um, it can come from recurrent or primary maternal infection, but um, it's much more common um, from a primary infection. So if mom gets infected for the first time um, during this pregnancy. And the interesting thing about that, when we look at our other answer choices, including about a reliable history, is that sometimes the first um, episode doesn't present with any lesions whatsoever. So a mom can have primary mm. HSV infection um, with really no symptoms. Um, and so um, when it says that she's denying HSV infection, it's not because she's lying to us. It's it's that they they just may not have any symptoms. Um, but yeah, I think 75%, if I remember, like 75%, that's the number I remember somehow. 75% of kids are born to mothers who have either 
no history or no yeah, or no scary. Symptoms. It's really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, uh, you certainly can have transmission without any active lesions. Um, it's most commonly acquired via direct contact with the vaginal canal during delivery. And uh, again, with or without um, uh, active lesions, you can still acquire the infection um, just with the viral shedding in that area. And if active lesions are present, then a C-section is recommended um, to reduce contact, again, um, with uh, viral shedding and secretions. This is especially true in the face of rupture of membranes. And when we talk about the presentation, um, so it it usually presents in about the second week of postnatal life if there hasn't been prolonged rupture of membranes. So some of our babies present much sooner um, if they've been over on labor and delivery with prolonged rupture of membranes. But a reminder that HSV infection um, sometimes doesn't present until almost a month of life. Um, So we really have to keep that in mind. Um, And then like you said, initiation of antiviral therapy, which is with a cyclovir, um, will treat the infection, but it will not reduce neurodevelopmental sequelae. Um, So babies who especially are having seizures um, have uh, significant brain abnormalities um, that can be seen on MRI and they just won't go away with a cyclovir. Um, The other scary thing is some babies may have significant um, brain abnormalities Um, even without seizures. Um, So we will have to check for those in any baby who presents with HSV. Okay. Yeah, it's not really like the next question is much uh, (laughs) jollier. (laughs) Are you ready for this? Okay, question 10. As the covering neonatologist, you are called to the newborn nursery to speak with a family who who, who has just had a healthy, appropriate for gestational age term newborn. The infant's physical examination is unremarkable, but the parents insist on speaking with the physician about the risk of congenital toxoplasmosis. This happens at two o'clock sure. in the morning. Of okay, course. I didn't say that. <laughs> the family is concerned because they adopted two new kittens during this pregnancy and want to know if their newborn was at risk of having an of having acquired a toxoplasmosis infection. Of the following, which is the most accurate statement about congenital toxoplasmosis? Choice A, full-term infants are less susceptible to toxo compared with preterm infants. Choice B, if this infant is found to have congenital toxoplasmosis, the length of treatment is approximately one year. Choice C, if the mother was asymptomatic during the pregnancy, i.e. no flu-like illness or lymphadenopathy, she did not acquire toxo infection. Choice D, most infants who acquire congenital toxoplasmosis show manifestations of disease on their initial physical examination. Choice E, the infant is at very low risk of congenital toxoplasmosis because kittens have had less time to acquire toxoplasmosis compared to an older cat. Okay. Luck, well, friend. you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of similarities actually. <laughs> between oh, yeah. uh, between these two disease processes. But um, right. full-term infants are less susceptible to toxoplasmosis compared with preterm infants. Um, I am pretty sure that that's not true, um, that preterm infants are uh, at least as susceptible and potentially more. I know that B is true. So if the infant is found to have congenital toxo, the length of treatment is so long, it's a full year. 
Um, so I, I do know that B is correct. But let's look at the other answers. If the mother was asymptomatic, she did not acquire toxoplasmosis infection. I That's not true. And most infants who acquire congenital toxoplasmosis um, do not show manifestation of disease, unfortunately. And then I'm not sure why, but I know it's those kittens. So <laughs> I'm going to say B. If this infant is found to have congenital toxo, the length of treatment is approximately one year. That is correct. I remember, again, this is another case of fellowship where one of my attendings said we should work this patient up for toxo, for congenital toxo. And then I, I was, I think it was a first-year fellow, so I didn't know much. And I said, all right, let, let, me, let me refresh myself about toxo. And I saw, because I'm like, if the parents ask me questions, I, I need mm. to know. And I saw that the length of treatment was a year, and I was like, "Hold, how I am I, how am I going to tell them?" Yeah. <laughs> I know, but that's and that that's still burnt in my. I was, and then I was praying. I was like, "Please don't let it be toxo. Please don't let it be." <laughs> so yes, if you do have a congenital toxoplasmosis, the length of treatment with pyrimethamine and sulfadiazine is for a duration of one year. They usually need also folic acid uh, supplementation. Let's go back through the, the choices. Um, they did some comparison between the susceptibility of full-term um, that are less susceptible than preterm. You're absolutely right. They're both equally susceptible. However, that's where it's tricky. There is a difference, meaning preterm babies can develop CNS disease early mm -hmm. when full-term babies could also develop it, but it usually happens later. That's where the difference really lies when it comes to term versus preterm. Um, we talked about B. Uh, it says if the mother was asymptomatic during the pregnancy, then she did not acquire toxo infection. Well, uh, most mothers during the pregnancy um, are asymptomatic. So that's not true. And then most infants who acquire congenital toxo show manifestation of the disease. No, 90% are asymptomatic. Again, a little bit like what we just discussed. And then um, finally, they talked about the kittens. And I thought that was an mm -hmm. interesting discussion because it's sort of yeah, it doesn't seem unreasonable. No, yeah, I don't have pets. So to me, you're like, yeah, the, the kittens are younger, so they didn't have time to acquire this. Like, it makes sense. Um, but it turns out that actually um, the primary host for toxo is domestic cats, and infection during the pregnancy can be acquired by the fecal-oral transmission of the oocysts. Kittens are actually more likely to excrete the oocyst than adult cats and therefore more likely to transmit the disease. So it's very counterintuitive mm -hmm. that actually the kittens are more responsible. Um, a few other things about toxo. Um, usually um, we talked about cat, but it can also come from poorly cooked meat. Um, the typical presentation, we have growth restriction, we, have, uh, we can have a rash, cervical lymphadenopathy, microcephaly, chorioretinitis, Cortical calcification leading to seizures, deafness, hydrocephalus is another one. Um, and yeah, 70, uh, the prognosis is 70% will have a normal outcome. And the more you delay treatment, the worse the outcome is. Uh, the most common complication, if not treated, is chorioretinitis. Um, something also to clarify, because these, these torch infections tend to have these, oh, when did you acquire it in the mm -hmm. pregnancy? Well, transmission increases with gestational age. So uh, it's worse if you acquired it early and, um, and you're more likely to uh, transmit it with increased gestation. Oh. Yeah. No, I think um, the one, one thing I wanted to um, definitely highlight mm -hmm. is that um, 
the hydrocephalus. So of the torch infections, yeah. you would expect microcephaly and you can see microcephaly in um, toxo. But toxo. if they present with calcifications and um, hydrocephalus, then then it's it's toxo. So bam, bam, bam. Okay. Okay. All right. Question fourteen. This is this is going to be another another doozy, but we'll we'll get there. A two month old infant is admitted to a pediatric hospital for treatment of pneumonia. At one month of age, he had required intravenous antibiotics for an omphalitis. The pediatric resident is concerned because the infant's umbilical cord is still present. She asks the neonatologist for advice. Of the following, the most likely etiology of the infant's delayed cord separation is A, Chidiak-Higashi syndrome, B, chronic granulomatous disease, C, hyperimmunoglobulin E syndrome, D, Kostman syndrome, or E, leukocyte adhesion deficiency. So. Um, <laughs> All those names. I I do, I do. Okay, so I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you again, there's a few things for the boards where I'm not committing tons of stuff to memory, but I do remember a few things. So number one, delayed cord separation, leukocyte adhesion deficiency has to be, boom, almost right. automatic. Um, Chidaik Higashi syndrome is a type of uh, syndrome where I think the kids have albinism and they have recurrent infections and peripheral neuropathy. Um, so that's, that's, that's what I remember. Chronic granulomatous disease is very, very tricky because um, it's a disease that causes recurrent infections and they tend to present with pneumonia. So that was one that I remembered and I was kind of threw off because that's the presentation of this child. But the, they're asking you about delayed cord separation, so that's why I'm not including it. Hyper-IgE syndrome, it's a type of syndrome that causes a lot of infections, especially related to the skin. And then... Kostman syndrome, I think I think we're going to go over mm -hmm. Kostman syndrome later. So I have a mnemonic for that, but I'll mm. save it for later in the okay. week. So Kostman syndrome causes recurrent infections. Um, but yeah, so my answer was, was leukocyte adhesion deficiency. That was I didn't think too much about this. Yeah, one. so the answer is E, leukocyte adhesion deficiency. So this baby had omphalitis. So um, already you should be thinking leukocyte adhesion deficiency. And now the baby's having a second infection, pneumonia. And the baby's here at two months of age and the umbilical cord is still <laughs> attached. So oops, maybe, maybe we should have picked up on this sooner, but um, we should be thinking leukocyte adhesion deficiency. So for me, I think it's easy to remember because it's the leukocyte adhesion and these babies have, you know, too much adhesion of the umbilical cord. And in turn, they can sometimes have omphalitis. So that's how I connect them. Um, but you're ignoring the, the word deficiency that's right. there. That's right. I'm just saying. That's how I remember it. Um, but what happens is that these babies have abnormal neutrophil um, function, even though they will have a normal or sometimes increased amount of neutrophils. And so um, the adhesion problem is that they, the neutrophils, as they're rolling along, along the blood vessels, can't grab onto the blood vessels. They don't have those um, adhesions um, to be able to leave the circulation and, and get to an infection. So this results in increased bacterial infections and very poor wound healing. And like this baby, have a much greater risk for delayed separation of the umbilical cord and omphalitis. 
You were right about all of the other ones also, by the way. So Shidiak Higashi has um, abnormal neutrophil degranulation. So there's a problem with the lysosomal trafficking regulator protein that leads to um, abnormal um, phagocytosis. Um, so it's they're not doing the correct phagocytosis and then they can't do the degranulation of um, of the neutrophil granules. So thusly, they have large intracytoplasmic granules in white cells because they can't do the phagocytosis. And um, these uh, children can present with partial um, oculocutaneous albinism, nystagmus, peripheral neuropathy, and recurrent bacterial infections. Um, unfortunately, the cure is stem cell transplant. Chronic... Chronic granulomatous disease is an X-linked defect causing um, in the NADPH oxidase. And so this too is an abnormal phagocytic ability and they have increased abscesses. So I, I don't know why I'm able to connect the, 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 the kind of visual cue of an abscess and granuloma. I, I connect the two. Uh -huh. They also have poor wound healing um, and they have granuloma formations. So um, hyperimmunoglobulin E, or Job's syndrome, um, also presents uh, with recurrent infections. These tend to be viral infections, and like you said, eczema. So I remember hyperimmunoglobulin E, E for employment, I think Job's syndrome. It's really Job's syndrome, but I can remember Job's syndrome, hyperimmunoglobulin E, and they have this abnormal chemotaxis. So you you get you have to pay taxes when you get paid for the work that you do. Um, so they have and E for, e eczema. for eczema in the hyper hyperimmunoglobulin E. Um, and as it states, they do have elevated um, IgE. They can also, in addition to the eczema, viral infections, and skin infections, they can have these kind of coarse facial features. And then Kostman syndrome, severe congenital neutropenia. Um, they have an ANC less than 500 and very frequent infections in the first few months of life. Um, these bacterial infections present mycotitis media, pneumonia, sinusitis, UTIs, abscesses of the skin and our liver. Um, and they, these um, children may also have a developmental delay and they're at risk for developing myelodysplastic syndrome. So. Do you want to hear my, my. Um, yeah. Tell, my tell us Kotsman. now. So we'll get it right next time. So Kotzman sounds like mm. a German name. So Kotzman the okay. German. Okay. Growing up in Europe, uh, I associate German with Germany with war, <laughs> which in, uh, again, it's, it's not, I'm not trying to make a case for anything. I'm just trying to remember what the Kotzman syndrome is. And, and war in German is, is Krieg, K-R-I-G. So K-R-I-G. K stands for Kotzman. R stands for recessive. It's autosomal mm. recessive. I is for infections. They get tons of infection. And G is for GCSF. You treat them with GCSF. Mm. Okay. So Kotzman, the German, going to the Krieg, um, that's how I remember. Right. You got to know your German for that one to work, but, I, but it might. I think it's yeah, going to work. I, the, I apologize for our German <laughs> listeners. I do not mean to associate Germany with war, but, you know, the Blitzkrieg and all that stuff. And I also think I misspelled Krieg, but K-R-I-G is how I remember it. Don't mess with my my board studying here. <laughs> well, now we will all remember okay. it. So at least that. Okay. Okay. Well, I think that's all, all right, we have time for. No, yeah, I think we covered a mm -hmm. lot of grounds. Okay.
All right. See you tomorrow, Daphna. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.